0: Tell it to the judge on Sunday, tell it to him, leave me alone. Tell it to the judge on Sunday, you can call him at home. Welcome to Torts Illustrated, Episode 2. I'm your host, Marie. It is, of course, disclaimer time. I am a lawyer. I am not your lawyer. This show is for fun, and we here on Torts Illustrated do not dispense legal advice. If you want legal advice, hire a lawyer. If you've done something bad enough, the government might even give you one. Okay, now, welcome to Torts Illustrated, where we discuss all things weird and wacky in the law from old England to today. On episode two, we'll be discussing the case of Nix v. Hedden, a U.S. Supreme Court case from the late 1880s. Just based on its topic, this one might sound a little bit boring. This case is about tomatoes. Now, you're probably wondering what the hell you got yourself into listening to a podcast where the host actually thinks it's a good idea to delve into the fridge on episode two. Stick with it, I promise you, this one gets weird and good. Allow me to take you back to New York in the 1880s. Ah, the Gilded Age. Welp was flowing into the city public health initiatives were finally becoming sort of a thing, so people are dying a little bit less of preventable diseases. Yay! And of course, transcontinental shipping was thriving with the construction of the Union Pacific Railroad in the 1860s. But if you wanted to eat a lot of our current fruits and vegetables, transcontinental just wasn't going to cut it. So if you wanted a good pineapple, a mango, or a nice juicy tomato, That thing was coming over the ocean, and it was probably coming into New York City, America's port. These products increasingly were coming from large wholesalers like John Nixon Company, which was among the first large exporters to source produce and bring it swiftly to the U.S. And this brings us to Mr. Nix, or should I say, Mr. Nix. John the Patriarch, John W., George W., and Frank W., Not a lot of creativity in that family. And they were in the important business of bringing fruits and, I suppose, some vegetables into the U.S. via ships. One lovely day in 1893, the Nix family imported a fabulous boatload full of tomatoes straight from the West Indies, which coincidentally is where your lovely host was imported from as well, so I can confirm that great things come from there. The Nixes and their fabulous Caribbean tomatoes arrived at the port of New York, only to meet with a nefarious tariff collector. Now let's take a second to talk about taxes and tariffs. Throughout the 1800s, the US had enacted tons of very specific tariffs to collect money on imports as those increased to the US. All of these tariffs added up to very upset business owners and left Congress and President Chester Arthur in a bit of a pickle. Everyone seemed to have a different opinion on what tariffs were fair and which ones should be gotten rid of, mostly based on what they wanted to save money on and what kind of products were entering through their region's ports. President Arthur tried to solve the problem through enacting a commission to sort it out, but much like today's Congress, competing interests made this a pretty difficult task. Cuts to tariffs would be politically popular, but a huge cut to any one tariff would be a major hit to the country's income. And even more familiar to today, Republicans wanted to push a change through before Democrats gained control of Congress. So the result of all this was the Tariff of 1883, also known at the time by its critics as the Mongrel Tariff Act, a truly lovely name. A more modern but no less accurate name might be the absolute shitshow of 1883. Tariffs on some items were lowered, some were raised, there was no clear indication of why any of these choices were made. And sometimes the tariff on a single item, for example, a banana, would be different depending on what port you brought them into. And in the end, the cuts that were made were pretty insignificant. Overall, the tariff of 1883 just didn't solve the problem it was supposed to solve, and it created new ones. And this leads us back to the Mr. Nix and their tomatoes. Now, the problem that the Nixes ran into was that the Tariff of 1883 had different categories for vegetables and fruits. There were certain fruits and vegetables that were enumerated specifically. So it might say if you're bringing in a bell pepper, for example, it's going to cost you a certain amount. But they also had some general catch-all categories. The catch-all for vegetables was as follows, vegetables in their natural state, or in salt or brine, not specifically enumerated or provided for in this act, 10% ad valorem, meaning basically a 10% tax on the value of vegetables imported that were not specifically listed in the act. On the other hand, fruits green, ripe or dried, not specifically enumerated or provided for in this act, could be imported free of tax. So any fruit that wasn't specifically listed with a tax number next to it could come in free. Now, I'm sure you can see where this is going. John Nixon Company argued that the tomatoes they imported were a fruit, so they could import them free of tax. The tax collector, Hedden argued that they're a vegetable, so he was owed 10% of a pretty large shipment. And of course, they took their squabble to court, which brings us here. Now, Both sides of this case in the lower court argued sort of like you see anyone arguing semantics on the internet. The defendant's counsel, in this case the tariff collector is the defendant, read definitions from Webster's Dictionary of peas, eggplant, cucumber, squash, and pepper as evidence, while the plaintiff then did the same, adding in Wooster's Dictionary with the definitions of potato, turnip, parsnip, cauliflower, cabbage, carrot, and bean. Let's talk about bean for a second, because this one is the one that struck me in the case and as you'll see in a little bit struck the Supreme Court too. Now, Beans are technically a legume or a seed, but come on, we all know beans are a vegetable. If I have refried beans with my tacos, I'm going to call that my serving of veggies and I'm going to call it a day. So, citing the definition of bean as technically not a vegetable isn't that convincing, since your average person really would lump them together. Now, in this lower court hearing, the Nixes also presented the testimony of two witnesses. The witnesses weren't biologists, they weren't English professors, they didn't work for Webster's or Wooster's or the Oxford Dictionary. These were people with experience in the business of selling fruits and vegetables. In fact, over 30 years' experience. The plaintiff counsel read them the definitions that we just discussed and asked the witnesses to say whether these words have any sort of special meaning in trade or commerce of fruits and vegetables different from the definitions read. And the witnesses testified that fruit and vegetable don't really have any special meaning within the industry. Now, as sort of another aside, this question right here is actually one of my favorite things about contract law and the way that courts interpret it, nerdy as that is. Words can have a lot of different meanings based on how they are particularly used. Let's say, for example, that everyone who manufactures stuffed animals commonly refers to the plastic eyes that you use as blips. This isn't a real example, but bear with me. So you come to me and you ask for a hundred bears with three blips each. Of course, using the common words of the industry, you mean a bear with three eyes. And I give you a hundred bears with three legs, because my grandma always used to call legs blips. My defense would be that this is a simple misunderstanding. But your stronger defense in front of the court is that as a manufacturer of teddy bears, I should know the common parlance of teddy bear manufacturers and you as a customer should expect me to know it, even if blip can have another meaning outside of that field. And so we're starting to see that even just through the type of evidence they presented in this case, that words have a lot of shades of meaning. Deciding what a single phrase in a contract or a tariff act means isn't as simple as just looking the words up in the dictionary. The lower court in this case agreed with the tariff collector that tomatoes are in fact a vegetable and the tariff was due. The Mr. Nix appealed, and eventually this very silly case over tomatoes ended up before the Supreme Court. Now I'm going to spoil the Supreme Court's verdict for you here before I talk about the why, but if you're going to email me complaining about spoilers on a case that's over 100 years old, find a new hobby. The court sided with the tax collectors, too, and a tomato is a vegetable. Sort of. And I say sort of because the Supreme Court openly acknowledged that, botanically speaking, tomatoes are a fruit of the vine, just as cucumbers, squashes, beans, and peas. So, on one level of language, yes, the Nixes are right. A tomato is a fruit. This is something our courts have to evaluate a lot, which level of understanding controls when you're talking about words that can be read in many different ways. First off, the Supreme Court rejected the dictionary literalism from the outset. The court said that, since there was no evidence that the words fruit and vegetables have acquired any special meaning in trade or commerce, they must receive their ordinary meaning. Of that meaning, the Court is bound to take judicial notice, as it does in regard to all words in our own tongue, and upon such a question, dictionaries are admitted not as evidence, but only as aids to the memory and understanding of the Court. So the dictionary itself holds no real weight here, it's just one of the ways that the Court reviews how other people interpret the words. Barring a particular meaning in the industry, the Supreme Court relied on their common sense, which hinged on a few facts. First, that tomatoes are grown in kitchen gardens, like other vegetables. Second, that tomatoes are eaten in the same way as other vegetables. The court described vegetables as usually served at dinner in, with, or after the soup, fish, or meats, which constitute the principal part of the repast. And yes, you might throw an apple in a salad now and then, but generally, this is the place for your savories, your vegetables. And third... Tomatoes usually aren't served as a dessert, like fruits. The court also cited back to another case, where they decided similarly that beans are seeds in the language of botany, but in common parlance and commerce, they're a vegetable. I want to take a sentence to talk about the court's last sentence in this case. They ended the case with a quote from that beans case, Robertson v. Solomon. Beyond the common knowledge which we have on this subject, very little evidence is necessary or can be produced. This is actually a really important sentence in both cases. Remember how we talked in the last episode about how court cases are used to interpret future cases? Or if you didn't listen to the last episode, hey guys, court cases are used to interpret future cases. Well, the court seems to be reiterating in both our bean and our tomato case that they use these common knowledge definitions in the absence of other, more convincing evidence. That means that the common knowledge understanding is not always going to control, this isn't a set-in-stone rule. In fact, there are a lot of different ways that courts can interpret words depending on the facts of the case. In this case, common knowledge controlled because there really wasn't anything else to rely on. Moreover, there was a similar case, our Bean case, on the record already, And the answer in that case was pretty clear. The Nixes were relying on a technicality to try and get around a tariff. So the justices ruled in the spirit of the law and common knowledge. A tomato is a vegetable because people think it is. In more recent cases, judges have used more evidence to assess products to see which taxes apply, even if they're still applying the basic common sense interpretation. There's a 2001 case where the plaintiff submitted a 20-page document detailing the minute differences between a fastener and a bolt, trying to get it charged a lesser tariff. And in 1991, there was a hilariously picky case in UK courts about something called Jaffa Cakes, which if you haven't had them, they're a kind of soft cookie, and they have a layer of jam and chocolate coating on them. Really delicious. In England, there's a value-added tax that's charged on chocolate-covered biscuits, but not chocolate-covered cakes. I'm saying biscuits as in cookies here, not biscuits as in American biscuits. So the manufacturer of Jaffa Cakes actually, in this court case, produce a huge Jaffa Cake just so they could show it to the court and argue that it's just a tiny cake, and when you blow it up to full cake size, it's clearly not a biscuit. And the court considered a bunch of facts here. On the one hand, the product is stocked on the shelves with biscuits, it's the size of a biscuit, and it's eaten with the hands rather than a fork and knife. On the other hand, it's called a cake, it has a cake-like texture, and it hardens when it's stale like a cake. The court balanced these facts, and in the end decided that it was a cake, but this was not nearly as cut and dry as our tomato case. And, of course, sometimes it's not possible at all based on just common-sense understanding to determine what a word means in context. Sometimes it's a lot more ambiguous than that. The case we learn about early in contracts law from 1960, where a buyer purchases a whole bunch of frozen chickens from a wholesaler. The shipment arrives, and the buyer realizes that they're all big chickens intended for stewing, and what he wanted was chickens for boiling and frying. Apparently these are different chickens. In this case, both parties had totally different definitions of the word chicken. Common knowledge wasn't that helpful, since the word standing alone is ambiguous. And my landlord keeps an assert amount of chickens in our yard, and I can tell you from personal experience, chickens come in a lot of different varieties, so words used in the course of business might not be as useful on the surface. So in that case, the judge went to the text of the contract itself and tried to see if the interpretation was clearer there. And this leads us to my other nerdy favorite thing about contract law, that words can mean anything you want among parties in a contract. So if you and I decide in a written contract that the word blue means red, and we write our contract that way very clearly and we both agree, it's going to be really hard for me to go to court and say, well, no, I wanted these items to be blue, even though I agreed in writing that the word blue meant red in the context of this contract. You don't often see people doing things that crazy, turning words totally on their head, but this does show up in little ways all the time. For example, if I'm drafting a sale agreement with parties selling a property, I'll often define all of the seller parties together as seller, singular, even if there's more than one seller. It's easy, and it means I don't have to comb through a document changing everything to plural and deciding which seller I mean if I use it in a singular way. As long as I drafted my contract clearly showing that my intent in using the word seller means all three sellers together, that's okay. The long and short of all of this is that we seem to have this perception that words have a concrete, static meaning. I can't count the amount of times I've seen someone arguing on Facebook, and they slap down a dictionary definition, or the text of a statute, and they think that they've just magically won this argument, that words can be played like an ace card. But the truth is that words are flexible and fluid, and they can be bent to meet our needs, whether it's avoiding a tariff on tomatoes, or just me being lazy and not wanting to change words around in a contract. We see this in the way that words' uses change over time, how literally now means figuratively, or the slang of today would be completely unrecognizable to people in the 1600s. Even our statutes, which are on the surface, clear written law, need interpretation. We can't see every eventuality, and so we can't draft our laws for every possibility. Odds are that the very people that drafted the tariff of 1883 would probably have disagreed with each other on whether a tomato was a fruit or a vegetable, but they never thought through that argument. Tax veggies, don't tax fruits, that seems like a pretty straightforward way to write a law until a situation arises and reminds us that there are always holes in the written word, and there's always a way for people to interpret differently. So I encourage you, next time your Aunt Judy tries to argue for some crazy policy based on the dictionary or some random snippet of a statute that she's taken completely out of context, take a breath before your head explodes, grab a glass of wine, and then jump on Fine Law or on Google to see if you can't find some case or controversy that says otherwise. You probably will, because humanity invented words and then has spent every day arguing over what they mean since then. Luckily, that alone can keep my type employed from here to kingdom come. That's it for this week, guys. Don't quote me on this, but I do believe we'll have our first guest star next week. If you've got cases you'd like to hear about or just want to tell me this podcast is terrible, you can email me at tortsillustratedpodcasts at gmail.com. On a more personal note, I'd like to dedicate this episode to my grandpa, Brian Salter, who passed away this week. He was silly and lovely, and I definitely got my weird from his side of the family. So, Grandpa, I'm sure you are up in heaven listening to us in a pool of brandy, so I salute you. Until next week, this has been Torts Illustrated. I'm your host, Marie, asking that when you kill all the lawyers, please spare me.